If you would, join me by taking out your Bibles and turning with me to Mark chapter 6, the Gospel according to Mark chapter 6. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again and ask for His assistance. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we believe that these are not just words on a page, but you have indeed breathed out these scriptures, and they have been preserved so that we would know what we are to believe about you and what duty you ask of your people. Father, would you be pleased to open our blind eyes to see your truth, open our deaf ears to hear your truth, and would you warm our cold hearts to embrace your truth and live out the reality of what is before us. Father, be pleased now to meet with your people through your word and by your spirit, for we pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who are counting, we are at week number 20 in our journey through the gospel according uh, to Mark. Uh, Jesus, according to the Bible, an exposition of the gospel of Mark, where we're slowly going through and seeing this portrait of Jesus, his life and ministry before our eyes. And I think it's, it's time here, we are at week 20, to step back for a moment and just remind ourselves that, and ask ourselves, why study a gospel? Well, let's first remember that Jesus said after his resurrection, when he was meeting with his disciples, he said, the entire Bible is about him. The scriptures are about him, and we read that in Luke 24. Now, again, that is an unbelievable claim, unless it's true. And of course, we believe it to be true, because we see in the Old Testament, Jesus predicted We see in the Gospels, Jesus revealed. In Acts, Jesus preached. In the letters, Jesus explained. And in Revelation, the last book of our Bible, Jesus expected. Promises made in the Old Testament, we see our promises kept in the New Testament. And indeed, as someone reminded me the other day when I just said, Jesus um, expected and Jesus arrived Uh, Someone reminded me, and Jesus will arrive again. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are foundational to understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. But why study a whole Gospel? Now, the Bible tells us one story in 66 books, and in a similar way, a Gospel tells one story throughout many verses and chapters. And we need to study a book in context, because these stories and these accounts in Jesus' life and ministry have been arranged for a particular purpose. Most often they are chronological, but that's not absolutely necessary because the writer, whether it's Mark or Luke or Matthew or John, they are arranging things to present a, a view of Jesus that they want the reader to know and understand. And one of the reasons why we preach consecutively through a book is because it, as it were, gives God the microphone. God has the microphone in his hand and he says, this is what I want to tell you about. And so 
we, instead of us holding the microphone and interviewing the Bible, God sort of interviews us as we come face to face week after week with this gospel account. Well, why study Mark? Well, as you know, it's the shortest. It's 16 chapters and it's believed to be the earliest and the core gospel of which Matthew and Luke use much material. Turn with me to Mark 1.1 and you'll see right off the bat the purpose of Mark to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is orderly, deliberate, and purposeful in the organization and structure of his book. It's been a while since we've said this, but it's helpful to always remember that the first half, part one, answers the question, who is Jesus? And the focus is on the person of Jesus. And the second half, part two, answers the question primarily, what did Jesus come to do? The focus is on his work. And right in the middle in chapter eight are those two questions where Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And then he turns around and says, and who do you say that I am? And the answer, of course, that Peter, representing all of the disciples, says, you are the Christ. And that's the hinge upon which the two halves of Mark swing. Mark's purpose and aim is really three things. Who Jesus is, what Jesus came to do, and how someone should respond to the person and work of Jesus. And put in the form of questions, we have our shortest catechism. All three questions. Well, let's look at the story so far. Let's look quickly at a summary of chapters 1 through 5. In the first two chapters, Mark has announced the kingly authority and the priority of Jesus to heal, to preach, and to forgive. In chapter 3, we see the arrival of Jesus begins a new era and marks the calling of a new people. In chapter 4, we see the parable of the sower, and it's pivotal to all that follows since it emphasizes the necessity of listening to and accepting the authoritative words of Jesus. And then in chapter 5, where we've been in the last few weeks, we see incidences that demonstrate what it looks like to actually listen to and accept the word of Jesus. They paint a picture of faithful acceptance in contrast to what we will see now in chapter 6 of fearful rejection. Well, let's look at a few more comments, make a few more comments about chapters 4 and 5. Remember, in the parables, the call is to listen, to listen. And so in our three-week mini-series the past few weeks, we've seen that it's faith in the king and the call in that was to believe. To listen and then to believe. In other words, the teaching about the power of the word, despite apparent weakness, opposition, and delay, has been followed by demonstrations of the power of the word over nature, over demons, over disease, and death. In other words, the word has been proclaimed to be powerful, and then we've seen the word being demonstrated or shown to be powerful. And Mark is wanting us to draw one conclusion about Jesus. He is the Messiah, he is God's Son, and he is the King. And because he is that and so much more, we are to believe in him, trust his authority, and rest in his care. Well, now we move into chapter 6, and in contrast, marked contrast with chapter 5, where we saw acceptance of the word. Here, chapter 6 begins with a sequence of incidences demonstrating 
the rejection of the word. In other words, the negative dimension of the parable of the sower. Where the seed does not bear fruit. These three stories that we will look at, one today and two next week, focus on the rejection of Jesus and the rejection of his authoritative witnesses, the apostles and the prophets. So our text presents a time when Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth and shows us the developing response of the people to Jesus. In other words, what we're going to see today is an answer to shorter, shortest catechism question three. How should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Well, what we will observe in our text is first astonishment and then offense and finally unbelief. For those of you that are taking notes, you might want to change point three to unbelief, to unbelief. First, let's consider the astonishment of the people. Join with me now as I read the first two verses of Mark chapter 6. He, that is Jesus, went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Jesus is now back in his hometown of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, had to be an exile in Egypt, but growing up, as we know, in Nazareth, about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, a village, a town of probably less than 500 people. And as scripture says elsewhere, people viewed what good could come out of Nazareth. Not only was Palestine a backwater to the, to the world at that time, but Nazareth was in particular a backwater even of Palestine in that day. Well, who is Jesus with? Well, it makes clear that he went away with, from there and went to his hometown and his disciples followed him. Mark wants us to know that his disciples are with him. And that will be important as we move into next week's rejection of the apostles as Jesus is teaching his disciples, his apostles. He's with his family. You remember his family went up to Capernaum to follow him early in his ministry and thought he was mad. His family is back in Nazareth. They're with him. But also you've got the townspeople, in particular the people there at the synagogue on the Sabbath when Jesus is preaching. Well, what is he doing? He's teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Jesus' custom was, of course, as a Jew, a faithful Jew, he would be in synagogue on the Sabbath. And we read in Scripture where Jesus had opportunities often to, to preach, to teach from the Scriptures. And what is the response of the people to his teaching? Astonishment. Astonishment. It's an appropriate and understandable response. In particular, it's not just his presence. It's not just this hometown boy now got a following. He's like a rabbi with, with disciples. No, they are astonished in particular at his teaching. And remember in, verses, in chapter 1, verse 27, the people say this is teaching, new teaching with authority. And what is the character of Jesus' teaching? Again, it's 
authoritative, and it's with wisdom. And it speaks of mighty works. Jesus is teaching that people are astonished. And what is the core of Jesus' teaching? Well, Mark doesn't tell us, but we can flip back to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, when we read this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So chances are most likely, most certainly, Jesus' teaching is somehow related to this call to repent and to believe. Well, not only is the reaction of the people to Jesus one of astonishment, But we see here it's also one of offense. In other words, their response doesn't stop with being astonished by Jesus. Because being astonished by Jesus, I hope we are astonished by Jesus. As we look at who he is and what he's come to do and what he's presently doing, I pray and hope that all of us would respond with astonishment. But we see it doesn't stop with astonishment. It goes on to being offended by Jesus. Look with me at verses 3 through 4. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. What is the offense of Jesus here? What is it about Jesus that offends them? I want you to pay attention to the text because we can go through scriptures and say there are a lot of things that offend people about Jesus. But I want to stick to our text because our text is going to tell us what it is that causes people to take offense at Jesus. And what is it? It's his background. It's his background. They know this man and and, and they are having trouble reconciling two things. What they know about him and these things. This wisdom he has and the mighty works we know he does with his hands. They have two things. What they know about him and what they know about him. In other words, the expectations they have of him and what they see in front of them. What they know about Jesus is he is of humble origin, a low socioeconomic status. He is the son of Mary. And many scholars, I think, rightly see that because Joseph is not mentioned, it's not only because Joseph has died, but it's a little bit of a... um, They've made the transition as they go from astonishment to being offended, is they're saying... Isn't there some question about his birth? Where's his father? He's the son of Mary because that's very uncharacteristic if never seen in any Jewish literature of a man being referred to as the son of his mother. No, the son of his father. And so these people have a grid of expectations. Jesus, they know, is from an extremely ordinary or even a socially marginal roots. Therefore, he couldn't be anyone special. The townspeople, those gathered in the synagogue, are somewhat like the scribes that we read in chapter 2, verse 7, that question the authority of Jesus. Who is this? Who does he think he is? And yet, 
while they have this expectation of Jesus based on he's the man who grew up in their town, yet they hear and they see these things. They see his wisdom and they've heard of and they've seen his miracles. And so there's a problem here, a discrepancy between what they know and what they see and hear. Now, whenever you've got a tension like this, it's got to be solved, right? I mean, who wants to live in tension where you've got two things that appear contradictory? So how do they solve this problem? How do they deal with it? Here's what they do. They ignore the evidence of eyes and ears in favor of a preset grid. They solve the tension between expectations and evidence by ignoring the evidence. They are like the scribes again, who Jesus is working right in front of and they can't believe it. Well, let's ask the question, how does Jesus respond to their offense? Look with me at verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus is not surprised. Jesus is not shocked. And get this, Jesus is not offended. He doesn't respond like we would respond. I mean, what do we do when we get offended? We say, if you hit me with one pound, I'll hit you with one pound and one ounce, right? And what do they do? They come back. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an escalating conflict, isn't it? Jesus responds to them being offended. He doesn't. He's not offended. He's not offended by that. In verse 4 that we just read, he gives a proverbial saying that once more portrays his family in a negative way. We saw in chapter 3. When Jesus was told that his family is outside waiting for him, Jesus responds, no, the ones in my family are the ones around me who listen to me, who do the will of their father. Those are the ones. He's contrasting his true family with his other family. And he says, my true family does my will. Indeed, that is a proverbial saying that's probably we've said before as well and Most of you all have shared about having unbelieving relatives, right? And you try to share Christ with them and it's hard and it's difficult, right? You're so close and they know you and you feel like I'm a lousy witness. Jesus, in a way, is saying not that he's a lousy witness, but the dynamics of the hometown are such that a prophet is not, there's no honor for a prophet in his hometown. And Jesus is also reminding the people there with that statement of the prophets that came before him that were rejected by the people. Well, let's ask this question now. How is Christ and his message still offensive to people, still offensive today in this way based on our text? Why are they offended? It's really not directly because Jesus says repent or necessarily that you are the children of the devil or any other of his provocative statements. Why are they offended? Because of who Jesus is and his background. He is not, he can't be the promised Messiah. There's no bells and whistles. He's ordinary. So 
How is Christ and his message still offensive in 2016? First, there's the ordinariness of the gospel itself. Because the gospel teaches us that we are saved by Jesus' good works, not ours. There's no eightfold path like Buddhism. There's no five pillars like Islam. There's no do this, do that, get your life together like the majority of an American works righteousness based religion. No, it is that simple. But it's unacceptable to many people. It seems too simple, too easy. So there's the ordinariness of the gospel itself, just like the ordinariness of Jesus. But also there's the ordinariness of Christians. Because Christians are those people who aren't those people who, who work to gain moral superiority, but those who admit their moral inability to please God. And so they've come to rely on who? Christ alone for salvation. So Christians are ordinary people. They aren't extraordinary people. They're relying on the ordinary means of grace. They're relying on Christ alone for salvation. They are not relying on themselves. And third, there's the ordinariness of Christian experience. Christianity is not usually accompanied by miracles or quick fixes. I hope you know this by now. Christian growth is hard work and it's gradual. Be encouraged in the ordinariness of Christianity. As someone has put it, it is a long, slow obedience in the same direction. And as one of my seminary professors reminded us time and time again, when you find yourself walking by faith and not by sight and you find yourself stopped in your tracks or shuffling your feet or sometimes stumbling and falling flat on your face, remember it is not the speed that you're going that makes the difference. It's the direction you're facing. And so when you stumble and fall and are on your face, get up and make sure you are facing the Lord. The Lord who provides forgiving grace and the Lord who provides enabling grace. Because my friends, we can be really fast heading in the wrong direction. So how is Christ and his message offensive today? I think it's because it's ordinary. And my friends, ordinary does not sell in Hollywood or Madison Avenue or it does not sell in a church that emphasizes the bigger the building, the better. The, 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 the number of bodies, the better. The, number of bu the biggest budget, the better. No, Christianity is ordinary and Jesus is, they are taking offense at Jesus because of his ordinary background. Well, not only is there astonishment, not only there offense, there's also unbelief, unbelief of the people. Look with me at verse five. And he, that is Jesus, could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the climax of Jesus' time in Nazareth. 
the climax of his time on that Sabbath in the synagogue, Jesus marveled. Jesus was amazed. The people were astonished and Jesus was amazed. He marveled at their unbelief. Recently, I was watching um, the first episode of Star Wars, which I think now is called Episode 4. And when it came out in 1977, it didn't have a title, but now it has a title. I believe it's The New Hope. Those of you that may have seen it may remember that one of the main characters, the antagonist Darth Vader, in speaking to one of uh, his, I think it was an admiral or a general, about the plans, that man the admiral or the general was speaking to Darth Vader and Vader's response was this, I find your lack of faith disturbing. Jesus doesn't find their lack of faith disturbing as much as he finds it amazing. He is marveling at that. And there are a couple of consequences here we see of unbelief. The first is Jesus could do no mighty work there. It's not because of a lack of power on Jesus' part, but rather it's a lack of faith on the part of the people. Chapter 4, the parable of the sower, has shown us the importance of faith. And chapter 5, with the demons, the disease, and death, has made the importance of faith concrete for us. And here the context is not being provided for Jesus to do the works of which people would believe and turn to him. So the consequence of unbelief, the first is Jesus could do no mighty work there. And the second is this, Jesus leaves town. Jesus here is rejected, but his mission, as we will see, is not thwarted. He goes and he teaches elsewhere. Here we see the parables being worked out. Turn back with me to chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. We read in that passage, For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. They have Jesus right in front of their eyes. But Jesus takes himself away. The parables are being worked out. Not only is Jesus rejected, but next week we will see the rejection of the apostles that followed him and the prophet that preceded him. Jesus is preparing his disciples and he's preparing us for rejection. Here's a word about unbelief. Unbelief is a serious matter. I hope you'll take some time to read the something to think about quote. I discovered this book recently by Heredius Bonar, who's written a number of great hymns in our hymn book. But he's also got this book, and I think, once again, the title is God's Way of Peace, A Book for the Anxious. A marvelous book, and in it he makes this statement, the belief of a lie and the rejection of the truth. My friends, when we have unbelievers around us, it's not that they're not believing anything. 
They're believing a lie. And they're rejecting the truth. Unbelief is serious. It is a fatal illness. It is a serious matter. Jesus is marveling because of their unbelief. Well, here in our text, we've seen this developing response of the people to Jesus. We've seen question and answer three of our shortest catechism. How should people respond to the per- person and the work of Jesus? We've been seeing that unfold. But we've also seen how Jesus responds to the people. Let's conclude by asking two simple questions. First, what is your response to Jesus? Is it one of astonishment, offense, and unbelief? Or rather, is it one of astonishment, surrender, and belief? So the first question that we all have to answer is, what is our response to Jesus? And the second question is this, what is or what will be Jesus' response to you? Interestingly, there are two times and only two times in the scriptures where Jesus is said to marvel. Two times, two places, two instances. Once here, And in a moment, you'll hear where else. So what is or what will be Jesus' response to you? And our answer to that question is going to be found in the two places where Jesus marveled. Will Jesus marvel or be amazed because of your unbelief? Despite having grown up in the church, being exposed to Christian teaching, being involved in a Bible study, having Christian friends, listening to the Christian radio station, buying Christian greeting cards, will Jesus be amazed? Will he marvel nonetheless at your unbelief? Or, as Luke records in the account of Jesus and the Roman centurion, the Gentile who was far away from him as opposed to the citizens of Nazareth. Will Jesus marvel? Will Jesus be amazed because of your faith? Because interestingly here we see that those closest to him live in unbelief. And sometimes those furthest away from him believe. My friends, I don't know how you're going to answer that question, those questions. But they're good questions to think about. And they're good questions to go before the Lord and say once again, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. My friends, may we as a church help one another position ourselves that even though salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, may we help one another stand before the Lord so that he, is, he marvels at our faith. 
Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, it doesn't make sense to us knowing what we know about Jesus to see people in his hometown, people who knew him, who grew up with him, reject him. Father, that's hard to believe, and yet it is so true that familiarity can and does breed contempt. Oh, Father, would you help us become more and more familiar with Jesus, not so that we can keep our distance from him, but become more and more familiar with Jesus so that we know he is our only hope. And we can only stand before you, Father, because we have fallen at the feet of Jesus. Oh, Father, help us to always be astonished by Jesus. Help us to surrender to him. And help us receive and live out faith in him that you alone grant. For we pray in Jesus' name.